We come now to God's Word, found in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. You can find that on page 1016 in the Bible in front of you, the Pew Bible, Luke 1, 26 through 56. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we do so asking for your help. Open our hearts to hear from you. Open our minds to see glorious things in your word. By your spirit, ready us to receive it with faith. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, I used to love playing with the magnifying glass that came in my science kit. Now, the point of a magnifying glass is to make small things appear larger. The lens allows you to look on things that are small, like rocks or leaves or anthills, and the lens makes those things appear larger. Now, being a destructive eight-year-old boy that I was, that's not what I enjoyed using the magnifying glass for. I think some of you know where I'm going with this. I didn't use the lens to examine rocks and, and leaves and anthills. I used the lens to focus the rays of the sun to burn holes in rocks and leaves and anthills which to my defense is still science. It's not ecology, it's not biology, but it is physics. It's a science joke for you all. Now, of course, that isn't what magnifying glasses are designed for. They're designed to examine things that are small, to see the details of something that might appear to be small and to to make those details larger and more beautiful and more glorious. That is what we find in our passage this morning. We find within our passage a lens in this story. This story enables us to see the glory and the magnificence of the gospel much more clearly. This story allows us to zoom in, if you will, on the story of the gospel and discover why it is the greatest story ever told. Simply put, this passage of Scripture beautifully magnifies the greatness of the gospel. In fact, the beating heart of this passage is Mary's song of praise in which Her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. So why is the Gospel the greatest story ever told? What does Mary come to learn and believe about the Gospel that leads her soul to praise and magnify the Lord? What makes the Gospel, the story of our salvation, so magnificent? This is what we'll find as we work our way through this passage. First, we'll see that the Gospel is the story of God's magnificent grace. 
And second, we'll see that the gospel is the story of God's magnificent mercy. So first, the gospel is the story of God's magnificent grace. We'll see this first in the setting of the first scene in this passage. The scene takes place in Nazareth of Galilee. This is where the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, comes to visit Mary in Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. In many ways, it was a non-place. None of the major religious writers of Luke's day wrote about Nazareth. It's not mentioned. None of the major historians of Luke's day wrote about Nazareth. It's not mentioned in their writings. And from Luke's language here, it's very likely that his readers, the people that he was writing to, the readers of this gospel, may not have known about Nazareth. They may not have been familiar with the area. To say it more plainly, Nazareth is not where you would go to announce important news. Nothing important happened there. As Nathaniel said to Philip in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So this announcement from Gabriel came to an undeserving city. And it came to an undeserving woman named Mary. She was a virgin betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. Based on the details here and what we know about betrothal at that time, it's likely that Mary was quite young, perhaps 12 to 14 years old. And being from Nazareth, she was likely no more than a peasant, a commoner. There was nothing special about her. So this message from the Lord here, on the lips of his servant Gabriel, comes to an undeserving town and to an undeserving teenage woman. And this is the message, verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. To an undeserving young woman living in the middle of nowhere, the angel of the Lord pronounces this message of grace. That's what the word favor means here. It's the exact word used throughout the, Old, the, the New Testament for grace. Literally, he says to Mary, Greetings, you who have been shown grace. The Lord is with you. Now Mary is greatly perplexed and confused specifically by this greeting. It's almost as if she's wondering to herself, are you sure you have the right person? I'm Mary. I'm 14. I'm from Nazareth. I was born poor and I'll die poor. The Lord isn't with me. He's with the important people in Jerusalem. You've made a mistake. You have the right person. I'm not worthy of such a greeting. If you were writing this story, the story of the mother of Christ the King, you would have had her come from the royal city of Jerusalem. 
You would have had her be clothed in all the trappings of nobility and wealth. That's where a king comes from. That's what somebody who is blessed and favored looks like. Wealthy. Noble. But no. Gabriel goes on to reassure her again. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. God has and will demonstrate His magnificent grace to you. This isn't a mistake. God's magnificent grace is always for the undeserving. God's favor is not a result of somebody's merit. It is the result of His sovereign choice. Grace, by definition, is getting what you do not deserve. This is the story that God was writing. A story of His free, gracious choice to save His people. And the way that He would save them is not how you might expect. As one commentator writes, the great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. There's nothing special about the place of this announcement, nor the person to whom this was announced. God would give the great gift of salvation to His people in a serene and unadorned package of simplicity. Mary wasn't chosen because of something special about her. If you come perhaps from a Catholic background, this is where they get Mary completely backwards. Catholics will say that Mary was chosen because she was full of grace. Because she was especially gracious. Because she was noble of spirit. Because she was especially holy. And this inspires several other myths, such as her perpetual virginity, her lack of original sin, etc. This completely misses the point. Mary was undeserving. That's the whole point of this story. She was a peasant child from nowhere. Mary is not a picture of nobility, she's a picture of humility. In this story, it is not Mary who is full of grace, but God who is full of grace that He lavishes on an undeserving young woman. God's grace is always for the undeserving. That's one of the principal, beautiful, glorious truths of the Gospel. You cannot merit God's favor. You cannot merit God's grace. It's free. That's why the story of the gospel is so magnificent. It's so unlike the way that the world works, isn't it? The way that the world works is that if you want something good to happen to you, you need to earn it. Or you need to get very lucky. But mostly you need to earn it. You need to work really, really hard for a long time. And then maybe, just maybe, something good will happen to you and you will have the life that you want. 
Maybe you're burnt out after living your life this way. Maybe the view of the world has seeped into your view of the church. That perhaps for something good to happen to you here, perhaps for you to have God's grace here, you need to work really, really hard for a long time, and maybe, just maybe, God will show His grace to you. Here's what the Gospel says in the first part of this passage. There is nothing you can do to deserve or earn God's grace. You just receive it freely as a gift. That's what makes it so magnificent. And what is the gift of grace described in this passage? The gift of grace described in this passage is nothing less than the incarnate Son of God. This is what Gabriel tells Mary. That she will conceive and bear a son who will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That her son will sit on the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. The way that God intends to display His magnificent grace to His people is through His incarnate Son. Luke here establishes the fact that the child to be born to ordinary Mary would by no means himself be ordinary. This child would be great. He would be called the Son of the Most High. He would sit on David's throne. And of His kingdom, there would be no end. This is a reference to God's promise to Samuel, or to David in 2 Samuel 7.16, where God says to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. He was and is David's great son who would sit on his throne forever. No other, his, no other ruler in the history of the world has ruled forever. That's what all the rulers of all the kingdoms in the world, of all history, have in common. They all died. And their rules came to an end. Not so of Christ. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His throne will be established forever and ever and ever. As it was prophesied in Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The glorious reign of God's gracious King will be forever. But consider with me a moment for a moment, the manner of our King's coming. God's glorious Son, our eternal King, 
would come to be born of a young peasant woman from Nazareth. He would come in serene simplicity. Yes, it would be a glorious simplicity announced by legion upon legion of the heavenly host, but yet we are left here with a simple and humble announcement of a simple and humble birth. How could such a king have such a birth? And how could Mary, a virgin, bear the Son of God? That's a great question. It's the question that Mary asks the angel. How can this be? Since I am a virgin. Look at Gabriel's answer in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This would be a miraculous conception. The result of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. The language used here of the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary is the very language used in Exodus 40, which we just read this past week in our daily Bible reading. Exodus 40, the very language used for the glory cloud of God that filled the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Like the tabernacle, Mary would be filled with the glorious power of God, His Holy Spirit. And she would bear, she would conceive miraculously the Son of God. Now, countless theologians throughout the ages have tried to present some more palatable alternative explanations for this verse, for this story. But friends, there is no way to wriggle out of the fact of what this text is saying. And you either believe it or you don't. Mary, a virgin, by the power of God, would conceive and bear a son. This birth would not be the result of human power, but the result of God's power. Therefore, the child would be called holy. He would be set apart. And he would rightly and truly be called the Son of God. Therefore, He's holy. He's from God, conceived by His power, and set apart as our Savior. Now Mary doesn't ask for a sign here. Zechariah asks for a sign, but Mary doesn't ask for a sign. But Gabriel gives her one anyway. He points her to how the power of God has enabled her barren cousin Elizabeth to conceive. And notice what he says. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. One commentator with a very Dutch name that I'm not even going to try to pronounce puts it this way. You'll see it when it shows up on the screen. He puts it this way. The laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They're not chains. They are threads which he holds in his hand and which he shortens and lengthens at his will. Friends, the power of God is sovereign over nature. God works in who He wants by His grace, and He works how He wants by His power. Nothing is impossible for God. We see this power on display both in the miraculous conception of Christ and in the faith of Mary and of Elizabeth and of her unborn son, John. What happens when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth? As soon as the greeting of Mary leaves her lips, the Spirit of God is at work in Elizabeth and John. Brothers and sisters, if you want a beautiful picture of how God by His grace works in the undeserving, of how God by His grace works in those who society casts aside and ignores, look no further than the glorious truth that the first person to respond in faith to the incarnate Christ is an unborn baby. That is the power of God. That is the grace of God. John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. God, by His Spirit, creates faith in an unborn child. And then He creates faith in Elizabeth. He gives them both the joy of knowing and trusting in Christ. That's the power of God. You see, the story of the Gospel is so magnificent because it is the story of the power of God to save which upends all of our categories for worldly, earthly power. That is why God always chooses to work in and through the undeserving because His Gospel is not about our power. It's about His power. That is what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians 2, 3-5. through 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Throughout this gospel, Luke will continue to direct our hearts away from faith and trust in worldly power. Away from faith and trust in our power. And towards faith and trust in the power of God 
by His Spirit. The power of God over life itself. And the power of God over our hearts and our ability to believe and trust in Him. Christian, don't rely. Don't trust in your own power. That will get you nowhere. Trust in the power of God. On the other side of this beautiful scene of faith, on the part of John and Elizabeth, the focus zooms in on Mary. How will she react to all these things? How will she react to God's magnificent grace? How will she respond to His power? What response could she have? What, a, what more appropriate response could anyone have except jubilant praise and worship? She erupts in song. She erupts in praise to her Savior. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Literally, my soul boasts in and makes great the Lord. She doesn't just praise the Lord with her lips. It is her very soul that magnifies the Lord. Her very soul that praises God, her Savior. This song of praise here is deeply theological. As a young woman who was well acquainted with the Scriptures, Mary's song magnifies the Lord. It magnifies the glory of who God is. The glory of God's plan for salvation. In fact, there is a sense here in which Mary's song, her, her soul, is actually magnifying the nature and the character of her Savior. You can really see the magnificence of Christ in this song. Mary's song, which has come to be known as the Magnificat, zooms in on who God would reveal Himself to be as Christ, her Savior. And the major note of this song is God's mercy. God's mercy, His loyal covenant love, His compassion, which He shows towards His chosen people. And what makes God's mercy so magnificent? I'm very glad you asked. That's the substance of this song, the mercy of God. We see that the mercy of God, His loyal love, is first and foremost from He who is mighty. That's what Mary says in verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. It is the holiness and the might of God that makes His mercy so magnificent. Because you would expect that a God who is so holy and so mighty might reserve His favor for those who are holy and mighty just like Him. But that's not what this song says. Look at verse 48. 
This holy and mighty God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. See who God looks on. See who God gives his attention to with his love. He looks upon the humble. The strong one looks on the weak. As it goes on to say in these verses, God's mercy is for those who fear Him. Meaning, those who humbly acknowledge His power and His strength. Those who come to Him in their need. As God said to His prophet Isaiah in chapter 66, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, isn't it good news that God is not like us? Who do we look to? Who do we look on? Who do we notice? The powerful, the famous, the proficient, those who can do something for us. This is why the gospel is the greatest story ever told. Because it is the story of Almighty God who by His grace and mercy chooses to look on, to give His favor to those who do not deserve it. Those who are humble and weak and needy. But notice how those who come to the Almighty God not in humility but in pride, notice how God responds them. Notice how they receive a different result. The strength of his arm scatters the proud. The mighty one banishes those who think that they are mighty. As it says in verse 52, he brings down the mighty from their thrones and instead exalts those of humble estate. In the story of our salvation, who is it that God exalts? Who is it that God magnifies? Who is God's mercy for? It's not who you might expect. His grace is for the undeserving. And His mercy is for those who are humble. This is a theme that will carry throughout the Gospel of Luke that Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners to Himself. That the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ came to fill the hungry with good things. The rich He sends away empty. Because it is Christ, Mary's child, our Savior, who became humble for us, who took on flesh, who became like us in every way except without sin. The exalted one became humble so that in him we might be exalted. That's the story of the gospel. Mary's song here is the story of who her son, our Savior, 
would be. He would be mighty. He would be powerful. No one could stand in the presence of Christ. But he would also be humble. And his strength and his humility would scatter the proud and exalt those of humble estate. He would show God's people that his mercy was for those who fear him. The people in Luke's day, those reading this gospel, they needed to know what kind of Savior Jesus is. And they needed to know what kind of people they were to be. And so do we. We need to see in this gospel what kind of Savior Jesus is. And by association, we need to see what type of people we are to be in Him. And this passage is very clear about that. We serve a humble Savior who calls us to humility in Him. The birth of our Savior was announced to a nobody from nowhere. He'd be born of a teenage peasant woman. And yet He was and is Almighty God, the ruler of all things, the Savior of the world. What a magnificent Savior. He was the holiest, most glorious man ever to live. And yet He was the most humble. And we are His people. We follow in His footsteps. We are to be a people who, say, who see the magnificent story of our salvation, the greatest story ever told. We are to be a people who see this story and who are humbled to our core by God's magnificent grace and magnificent mercy. We are to be a people who only ever boast in God's mercy and grace, who boast in God's strength. That's what humility is. Humility is not false modesty. Humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is knowing exactly who you are. It is knowing that you are a sinner saved by God's grace who is completely undeserving and is dependent on Christ your Savior for everything. That is humility. That is the truth that we come to find in this Gospel. That's the beginning and end of the Christian life. Humble dependence on Christ our Savior. As Church Father Augustine once wrote, if you should ask me, what are the ways of God? I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. Brothers and sisters, if humility does not precede everything we do, our efforts in this life will be fruitless. As we come to study this gospel, it is my prayer 
that as we study the greatest story ever told, that God would humble us. That He would rid us of our prideful independence. And that He would strengthen our faith in His grace, in His mercy, and in His power. Amen. Let us pray. Father, humble us now in the presence of our Savior. Lord, as we see your might and your strength and your power, we ask that you would rid us of our pride. Rid us of our independence. Bring us into a position of humble faith in our Savior. We praise you for your magnificent grace that you choose to work in and through those who do not deserve it, that you choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, so that our faith might not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. In the light of your magnificent mercy, we pray that you would increase our faith in Christ, that he would be all in all, that our hearts would find rest in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.